Hi, everybody. Hello. Mm -hmm. Hello. Everybody, please mute. Hi, everybody, and welcome to the Scottsdale Big Book Study, where we will study the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous. My name is Maria F. and I'm a recovered compulsive overeater from County Dublin in Ireland, and I'll be your host for today's study. Our co-hosts today are Nancy J. and Johan N. If you have any questions or any concerns during the meeting, please contact either myself or any of the co-hosts by private message in the chat function. We will disable the chat function until five minutes before the question and answers, and then we will open up the chat. So if you've got a question, please do post it there. We'll open it up 10 minutes before the end of the meeting. Please note that Harlan is actually ill today. So Harlan, Harlan won't be with us today, but we do have two speakers. We've got John Kay from California, and we've got Heidi H from Chicago. So we're really looking forward to hearing their experience, strength and hope. We ask if you can please keep your microphone on mute at all times during today's study. And also, if you need to step away from your screen for any reason, just disconnect your camera. Um, during the meeting, we will post the link to our seventh edition, and this money goes towards the cost of our Zoom account, the cost of uploading our recordings, and we also send contributions to Intergroup and to the WSO. So now I'm going to turn over the meeting to... John Kay for 30 minutes. John, if you could share with us for 30 minutes. And then after that, Heidi will share. And for 30 minutes, then we are going to have a QA section. So um we might ask you some questions there, John, if that's okay. So over to you, John. Good morning to you. Good morning. I'm John Compulsivere from Los Angeles. Uh some of you folks know me. I've been done a lot of retreats all around and uh I'm so sorry Harlan's under the weather, and I already wished him well this morning uh, via text. Um, I'm just going to do a short sort of food log because um, I think everybody's heard a version of this already. Um, <clears throat> but I I grew up as the child of two alcoholics. Uh, you know, I'm Irish on both sides. What are the chances there's an Irish alcoholic? I know. Um, and... Uh, I had a very crazy childhood, a lot of moving around from place to place and crazy stuff. And I also got, you know, uh, I'm, a, I'm a drug and alcohol counselor. And, and one of the things we talk about sometimes is modeling. So I did not get a lot of good modeling from my parents. Um, and the things I learned were not good things. I mean, uh, we would talk about sports. We'll talk about politics, but talk about our feelings, how we feel about anything. That's not going to happen. Uh, crazy stuff would happen uh, the night before, and then in the morning, everybody's just pretending like nothing's happened. You know, you know, forget that there's a car coming out of the front door; it's fine. Um, and and the, to me, uh, the thing that impressed me the most, and one of the things that happens, you don't necessarily get things from your parents directly, but you'll get things by watching them and thinking this is normal. So whenever either of my parents would get upset. They would say, I, I need a dot, dot, dot. I need a drink. I need a pill. I need a cigarette. I need a something. And as a little kid, you get the idea, oh, well, if I don't like how I'm feeling in here, there's something out there that I can put in here that'll make it better. And, and as a result of this sort of traumatic childhood I grew up in, um, I wanted to self-medicate any way I could. And, and at a very early age, that was through food. Um, I moved a lot when I was younger. Um, 
I, I joke, I was in an uh, adult-child Al-Anon meeting once, and the, the speaker was saying, I moved six times by the time I was in the sixth grade. And I remember saying to the person next to me, I said, I think I moved six times in the sixth grade. <laughs> you know, So the, the point, and all over the country, too. And the thing is that there was no permanence. There was no anything, no friends I held on to. There were just two friends, and that was salt and sweet. And I would go back and forth between salty stuff and sweet stuff, salty stuff, sweet stuff. And I grew up as a fat kid because that's what happens when you do that. And um, I always say I've been a fat kid. I've been a fat adult. I uh, fat kids miserable because kids are just brutal. They're you know, they there's no filter and they I've got beat up because I was fat and all that. And the one thing I had is I was gifted with a really good brain. So. Um, that's one of the slight redeeming features I had, or I thought, because uh, it was so funny all the way up until when I got sober. Oh, but uh, give me quick qualifications. I've been um, I've been in OA for 41 years. I have been abstinent about 27. I am sober in another program for 41 years. I've been maintaining about 110 pound weight loss for almost all that time, except for some relapse there in the middle. Um, and so. Um, as a, even well into sobriety, uh, I had this thing where as soon as you met me, I had to make sure you knew just how smart I was. Uh, and the reason I can look back now was because if you feel as shitty as I did about myself physically, I had to find any little thread of self-esteem I could get. And for me, it was my brain. And, um, and that's what, what I did, um, all the way through high school, I uh, I was heavy. I didn't date. I didn't have, go to the prom. I didn't, you know, have a girlfriend. And um, at the end of high school, right about the, you know, um, call it my American graffiti summer, if anybody remembers that movie, um, I found alcohol. And I was never going to drink because I am a smart person. And I saw what happened to my parents. And I, I had enough ability to read that old oh, children of alcoholics tend to become alcoholics themselves if they start. So I was never going to start, but I was so terribly shy around the opposite sex. And I, you know, you're a 19, 18 year old boy full of hormones. You know, that's one of the things you want to do is meet the opposite sex. But I had crippling anxiety and depression. And um, I, all of a sudden I found this wonderful magic liquid, you know, that made me confident and self-assured and you know it was James Bond all of a sudden you know I don't know what that was about but um the uh and I fell in love with it immediately and I, I know this isn't an AA pitch but it is just a little part of my story is that I fell in love with alcohol that became it switched my drug of choice and I for the first time in ever I was able to lose weight and essentially it's because I you know changed my sugar to the liquid variety um, and then I also went about losing weight in the craziest ways possible. First of all, I would not eat for a week at a time. And then I would like binge one night, you know, and then I'd not eat again for another week and I would binge. And, you know, if you're a 19, 18 year old boy, you know, who's got the metabolism of a hummingbird, you, you will lose weight, obviously not very healthy, but at the same time, I can look back and go, you know, I knew even then that there was no like dimmer switch on my, my food. There was either off or on. And the longer I could keep it off, the better I could, you know, maintain some kind of normal weight. 
So I got down to a normal weight. I always say for about 10 minutes, <laughs> I ended up in my first relationship uh, and then alcohol took over. And uh, pretty soon that went away and alcohol. There's a line, I think it's Fitzgerald says, the man takes the drink and then the drink takes the drink and then the drink takes the man. Um, so I was off and running. And then of course, as soon as I was really in bad shape alcohol wise, I got back into the food as well. I always joke, I said I was a I was fat, then I was a drunk, and then I was a fat drunk, you know. And um my introduction to uh 12-step programs, well, actually, me and my introduction to 12-step programs when I was a kid, my mother would go to AA meetings and I would sit in the back and you know just raid all the goodies. Um uh, but my real, I went a couple times when I was still drinking and I just, I couldn't deal with this religious group because they, I see God all over the place uh, and I wanted nothing to do with it. Um, but I ended up in detox uh, on Christmas week, 1980. Uh, I always say I've been in programs since the Carter administration. <laughs> um, and I found, I, I ended up getting sober. Um, and, and again, it's, this isn't an AA pitch, but it, it, one part of my story that, that did come from AA was that I was, I, I started going to meetings and I was, I was, you know, a member of the debating society and I can't be part of a religious program. And they're telling me, oh, it isn't religious, it's spiritual. And I would like point to the to steps and say, see, it says God, 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 capital H him, um, and the best thing that ever happened is a, uh, an old timer was listening to me and he says, he looked at it and he says, okay, leave it out. And I was like, what? He said, leave it out. Leave out all the higher power thing. Don't let it be a reason to send you out the door because that's what your disease really wants right now. And you can find any reason. He says, I swear on a stack of Bibles, you can be be in this program until you're 110. Nobody's ever going to tell you you have to believe anything in particular or believe at all. And the one thing he said, and I say this to sponsees and people I work with, is just keep an open mind. You know, try to not have um, a closed mind. And I, I used to think I wasn't closed minded, but when it came to that, I can look back and see that I, I really was. Uh, part of it is, you know, we all get a hand-me-down religion. I got one from my parents, and, uh, you know, I I always joke I had the worst possible introduc introduction to any kind of religion. I had parents who said, go to Sunday school, go to Mass. Oh, we don't go. <laughs> so um, it was this crazy. But, and so I had this idea of that's what God is, that's what higher power, and I got taught here, no, it is what you want it to be. And that is, to me, so important. Um, you know, I always say, uh, after all these years in program, I have met Catholic priests in program. I've met uh, Episcopalian ministers, nuns, uh, uh, rabbis, uh, cantors. And if it was simply a matter of a conscious contact with a higher power itself, they probably would not have had to be here because they really did work on their spiritual side. But the thing is, they had a power, a higher power that wasn't helping them with their problem. And and they had to come in. I always say this program is like a, a, a lifeboat that I believe, you know, I always say the 12 steps were God's gift to the 20th century. And and this is the rowboat, I like to call it. And and I tell I tell sponsees that if they have a problem with uh, you know, with the higher power, um just forget about that right now. Just And I say, just believe in the program. Believe in this rowboat. Now, I happen to have a belief that it was somehow God-given. I don't have the exact details. 
so I believe that there is a like a thread from this rowboat up somewhere, okay? But if you don't want to believe that, just cut the thread, believe in the rowboat, and you have no trouble believing it because you can go to meetings and you can see all kinds of people at all levels of intelligence who had tried everything that society had told them to, to work on for their problem and it didn't work. And then they came here, they followed these steps that are in the big book, they read the big book and understood its message and they got better. And I tell newcomers, if you have trouble with any of these things, I, I always say step one for me was said to me by an old timer when I first came. He said, here's step one. If you could have done this yourself, you'd have done it by now, <laughs> you know. And then he's, step two is you got a broken brain. You can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And three, there's a lot of people here. Go ask somebody for help and then be willing to take direction. You know, you, I got told you, you drove your car into the ditch. Let somebody else help you tow it out. And uh, so that was my introduction to AA. And then what happened is, of course, I, I relapsed in, in uh, with alcohol within my first year, which happens a lot. And then uh, hold on one second. Uh, um, the it's just loud outside. Um uh by then I had I had heard about OA and I knew that was I it you know the light bulb went off when I heard it but I hadn't actually come and then um uh after this relapse I realized I came back and I said to the person who became my sponsor uh after that I said I have to work on the food thing these two things are working together and he you know in AA they're like oh don't worry about that come come have a have a bar of chocolate you know there's even a line in the big book about that and I went, no, you don't understand. These two things are like this. And he told me, okay, fine. I don't care. You make the meetings I want you to make. I don't care what the heck you do in your spare time. You want to go to OA? Go ahead. And so I did. I came in OA and I fell in love because all of a sudden, all of the things that were so cunning and baffling and powerful made sense. You know, why I've got this great brain. I got this great IQ and it's been able to solve almost every other problem in my life except this one, you know? And the reason, again, you can't fix a broken brain with a broken brain. And um, what I uh, I did is I started going to the meetings. Uh, uh, I got a sponsor and I had a sponsor for a while. And I always talk about the fact that I have had every iteration of compulsive eating. I am a compulsive eater. I have been a bulimic. I have been an exercise bulimic. And for a very short time, when I first came into OA, I became an anorexic. And here's the story on that. If you've been heavy your whole life, you just have an idea that goal weight is like nirvana. It's heaven. There, you When you hear goal weight, you can almost see angels and stuff. So I had this idea that when I got to goal weight, I would become self-confident. I would like myself. I would be, you know, I could talk to women easily and all that. And so I had a number of what my goal weight was going to be. And 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 thanks to OA and back in those days, I, I came in right after Gray Sheet went out, but they had the, the dignity of choice and I followed that rigorously. Uh, I got to that number. I got to that number of weight. And you know what? Nothing changed. I didn't like myself anymore. I didn't feel any better about myself. I had no more self-confidence. So again, the genius that I am, I said, well, must not be the right number. So I lost another 10 pounds and I still didn't like myself and I didn't feel any better about myself. And okay, I'm going to lose another 10 pounds. And by that time, and this was in the middle of the AIDS crisis, people are going, John, are, are you okay? Anything you want to tell us? Um, and the only reason I bring that whole thing up is I think I had to do that because I'm a stubborn Irishman who 
who has trouble unless it's unless it's something he experiences at least that time. I I have since gotten a lot more thanks to the seventh step um, of of being able to learn from other people's mistakes. Um, but at that time, I had to do that because it taught me that there was no number on a scale that was going to make me feel good about myself, was going to make me any more self-confident, was going to make me any of those things. And I can look back and know that was a really important object lesson I had to get. Um, I kept going in a way my, my OA sponsor ended up leaving and I was like, well, I'm, you know, AA, I don't need all this. And I, and I stayed abstinent for a good year plus real squeaky clean abstinent. But, you know, this disease is just so wonderfully patient. It just sits there and goes, okay, I'll wait. You got time, <laughs> you know, and sure enough, I went on a relapse and, um, I was living in the New York area and uh, I, by then I had met somebody and we'd gotten married, but I was on this really bad relapse, you know, and I always talk about my, I, I really sort of specialize in talking about relapse because it's my story and I call it a relapse cycle because most people, if you're in OA and you've been having problems, it isn't like, boom, you go on a relapse, you come back. It is you go out for a while, you come back, you, you get abstinent again for a while, you lose it, you come back a month on, a month off, a week on, a week off. And that was my story. And it was absolutely miserable. And I pulled it together for a while. And then we moved to Los Angeles and my program fell apart. You know, it just absolutely, I could not stop. And the thing is, this is I could not stop from somebody who was going to five to seven meetings a week, who was had a sponsor who was a delegate to intergroup had, I was even running a meeting and was a sponsor. Those last two things I shouldn't have been doing because I was in the food, but it was just, I mean, so there's this person who's going to these meetings. I could coach you the big book forwards and backwards and I could not stop. And I remember I was leading this meeting it was called artists and abstinence up in the Hollywood area. And I would leave the meeting that I had just led and stop at the donut shop on the way home. And as I'm leaving the donut shop, I remember one day going, well, what am I doing? I'm, I'm not sentenced away. You know, over in AA, sometimes judges will say you have to go. I'm not sentenced. I don't have to be here if I don't want to. But I couldn't get it because uh, that's the, you know, the cunning, baffling part of this disease. Uh, I always like to talk about my disease and I look at it now. Is, is like the world's best salesman. If you, if you think about somebody you know who's a good salesman, they're personable and they're likable and uh, they like their product, you know, which in my case, the, with the disease, it was the food. It knew I liked the product and it was always trying to make the sale of getting me to go out and eat. And the trouble is that salesman was there 24-7 and is there 24-7. And imagine how bad it is because this salesman could also read my mind. You know, think about if you ever wanted to go in and, and buy a car and the salesman could read your mind, anything you were about to say, no, he's got the answer to. Well, that's what my disease did. And it just kept being there trying to make the sale, trying to make the sale. And if it did make the sale, which it did often in the, those times, the really evil thing is it would put its arm around me and say, oh, and by the way, this, this was your idea. And, and I can look back and I'm going, well, was it my idea? If it was my idea, I wouldn't have gone to seven meetings a week. I wouldn't have had a sponsor. I wouldn't have been doing that. But that's the really evil thing about addiction is that in that moment of impulse, it convinces you it's your idea. And, and I can look back now and go, no, it really wasn't. Um, let me just fast forward real quick. I, I 
ended up going to another program for a while. I had a very rigid food program and it helped me to get abstinent because I was having trouble getting abstinent in a way, mainly because everybody was eating different things and I was still very immature. And I used to be like, well, if she gets to eat that, I want to eat that. If she gets to eat that, I get And I know now that there's foods I can eat that other people can't. Other people can eat foods I can't. But at that time, it really helped to go somewhere where everybody did it. And when I did that, things started to change. And I ended up coming back to OA after a few years. And I always say there was two OAs I was a member of. Uh, the first OA was, OA was about meetings. It was about fellowship. It was about going out to eat with people. It was about getting on the phone and gossiping about others. And hardly anything about the big book, hardly anything about the steps. I think I did a cursory fourth and fifth at one point. But the second time around, it was about the big book. It was about recovery. It was about understanding how broken I really was, you know. And the other thing I'll put a pitch in for here is was therapy. I got a lot of therapy and it changed a lot because I needed to attack my disease from both directions. The first direction being the symptom. If I don't keep the food down, there's I'd only waste my money if I went and got therapy. But the therapy helped me see where my problem came from. Now, I tell people that, you know, my clients that, you know, all these years of program, I've, I've actually worked out almost all of these things that caused me to self-medicate, but I still can't go eat the things I used to because I passed that point, you know, and there's actually scientific evidence that says if you've been doing certain addictions long enough, you change your brain chemistry and that's why you can't go back. And it talks about that in the big book at one point. And, um, uh, and so I got abstinent and, and I, I, I spent a lot of time after that, looking back now on what it was that caused a lot of my relapse. Um, and, and I want to talk about that uh, a bit. Uh, I used to say, I'd go to meetings, you know, I'm a good little student, you know, and, and I learn what you tell me and I parrot it back to you, you know, and I got told I'm powerless, I'm powerless over food, Right. And I'd get up at meetings and I'd go, I'm powerless over food. And then I would go eat, <laughs> you know, and re relapse. And then I'd come back and say, no, I'm powerless over food. And then I'd go eat again. And then I'd come back and say, I'm powerless over food. And I'd go eat again. It took me years to look back at that and realize how powerless did I really think I was? Was I saying when I went out to relapse, oh, the heck with this, um, OA doesn't work, I'm leaving? No, there was a part of my brain that said, I'm going to go do this. And when I'm ready, I will come back. I will get abstinent again. And that was the real problem. And the real problem was that in a way, I wasn't even deluding myself. I had some empirical evidence that it, that was the situation. Because if you think about it, if any of you have gone through relapse on and off and on and off, there's a part of your brain that says, well, they tell me I'm powerless, but look, I went out last year and, and, and I came back. So I'm going to you know, I'll be able to come back again. And the fact is this, it dawned on me that the first step talks about powerlessness. It, I am powerful over the food, but I am powerful over the food in the small, tiny picture. But if I pulled the camera back, and because I remember on one of the last times I went out and relapsed, I remember saying, why did I do that again? And there was a little voice that said, you didn't do it again. You just haven't really ever 
totally committed to abstinence. And, and I realized that that was what happened, you know? And I know now that I am powerless over it, but I am powerless over it in a different way than I saw it before. Uh, I used to hear when I first came in, used to hear like a real adamant, we don't eat no matter what. And, and it's certainly true, but I heard somebody say it so much better. They said, if you're a compulsive eater and you've made food an option, it's always going to be the only option. It's always going to be the path of least resistance. If you have a choice between being upset or in pain or something or eating a food you like that will make you feel better, it's a no-brainer. Who wouldn't, right? And so what I realized is I had to change that. Food had to stop being an option. And when that happened, some of the stuff I had to deal with was tough, but I got through it and out the other side because before all I was doing is resetting and resetting and I was never really changing. You know, that line, nothing changes if nothing changes was just so real for me. Um, and I so, can't. I, yes. What, five minutes or? Five what? minutes five, left. Five, five minutes, minutes left. Okay, yeah. good. Um, so I, uh, I'm trying to think of where I was going with that. The, it really helped to understand that and helped to understand how the relapse had worked in my life. And then it had to be that food couldn't be an option to emotion. I can enjoy my food. There are still some foods I don't do because I can theoretically do them. I know enough now. My old disease, if, if I ate a little something I should have, well, that's it. I've blown it. I might as well go eat. Um, now I'll sometimes accidentally have something and, and know, okay, I may have some cravings here, but that's okay. Um, I always say that, you know, setting your abstinence is so important that, that, um, you know, that, that figuring out a food plan that works for you is important because I, uh, I always say it's like trying to be standing astride a very steeply pitched roof and you can roll off in either direction. One way you can roll off is by deluding yourself. Well, it wasn't too bad. I'll just get abstinent again. Oh, relapse is part of program. And you just keep going off there over and over. But the other way could be bad too, which is to say, oh, I ate a pea I shouldn't have. So what the hell? I'll go have a cake, you know? And, and to understand that that's, that's, that's the game, you know, that's the game we play with ourselves, you know? The, the thing I, I, I talk about is that my disease got up every day during my relapse with one job, and that was to get me to not put the food down one more day, because if it knew if it could convince me today, it could probably convince me tomorrow. And it would do it with all kinds of delusional thinking that I really thought was good program stuff. Well, I'll just work on my higher power stuff, and then it'll all come to place. So I'll work on the steps. And, and I realize now that my disease just threw whatever it could at me to get me to kick the can down the road one more day on not putting the food down. And I wish I could tell you that it could be done a different way. But in my experience of a lot of years, it just isn't. Um, have I ever been at a meeting where somebody said, oh, I, I work steps and then I got abstinent? Yes, once in a great while. The trouble is that for every one of those persons who says that and did that, there's a hundred or a thousand people listening to that person thinking they could get that same lottery ticket. When the reality is for almost all of us, we had to find a way to put the food down and keep it down. And it isn't easy in the beginning. I always say, this is hard. People should say this more at meetings, especially in the beginning. It's hard, but it's not hard forever. 
But to get to the place where it's easy, you got to go through the place where it's hard first. But I kept going through the same hard part over and over thinking, oh my God, absent, how does anybody do this for years? Because I just kept doing the hardest part. And so today I really get that that has to change. I have a higher power today. It is not the higher power of anybody else's. And for me, a big part of it is it's watching over me. I have to do my part. I have a disease. I have to take my medicine, which is to go to meetings, work the steps, help others. You know, people with diabetes have diabetes, but they have to take their insulin. If you if you have bad kidneys, you got to go to dialysis. I have to do this. But I my deal is if I do that, my higher power will meet me halfway. No, nobody, no higher power has ever reached in and ripped somebody's abstinence from them. You know, it, at the end, I really believe that my abstinence is a gift today because why that Monday I got it when God knows how many Mondays before that I had tried and not held on to it. I don't know. So for me, it it's an absolute gift. And I know that I'm the only one who can give it away, you know, and I've stopped deluding myself into believing, oh, if I give it away, I'll get it back because it may never happen. I had a really good friend in program who was had been doing really well and he ended up going out and then he came back and he slipped and he slid and he died. And I know if I could have gone in a time machine, got back to that exact moment where he's about to pick up that first compulsive bite and say, Murray, for God's sakes, don't do this. You're going to die. It would be different. But that's the problem we have with food. We never hit the same bottom as we do with alcohol and drugs. Instead of it being an acute pain like it is in those diseases, it's a slow, dull pain. It allows us to keep accepting more that was unacceptable. Well, I'll never get to 200. Okay, I'm a 200, but I'm not going to get to 210 and on and on. And we just keep having that. And I always use the analogy, it's like the frog in the in the pan of water. If you take a frog and put it in a pan of room temperature water and slowly turn up the heat, you know, a frog that would, if you brought it toward boiling water, would, you know, want to get away, it will stay in that pan and, and that it could jump out of at any time and die. And that's what, to me, compulsive eating is, a very slow heat that keeps getting and unfortunately, for some people, they leave before the miracle. They think after a certain amount of time, I can't get it. Well, let me tell you that I go to meetings with people with 20, 30, 40 years of absence. Not one of them started it on a tomorrow, you know, and they didn't even start it on a today. You know, when they started, they started right now, this minute, you know, anybody who's watching, I'll bet is abstinent right now. You will have to actively go break your abstinence and you don't have to. You can stay here and make it work. But in the beginning, make it about the food. I believe in the steps. I believe they're really important. But don't let your disease try and and and, and divert you from working on, on that. The great line, and I'll end on this, I guess, is my one of my favorite lines in program here in L.A. is it's not about the food unless it's about the food, then it's all about the food until it's not about the food. And that me, that's, it comes down to things. I, uh, one of the quotes I hear in AA more than here, first things first, we have to put the food down. We have to hold on to it. And as soon as we done, I always heard, put down the food, pick up the steps. And to me, that, that's what's changed my life. 
And with that, I will end. I'm pretty sure I'm right about out of time, Maria. So I'll hand Thank it back so to you. Thank you so much, John. Thank you so much. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm so reluctant to call time because I could have I could have listened to you all night, John. I heard you in in Newark share a, a few years ago, so it was a joy, an absolute mm-hmm. joy to hear you again. Um, so now we are going to go over to Heidi H, who's going to share with us here this morning. Good morning to you, Heidi. Good morning, family. I am Heidi H. Chicagoland. I'm a grateful, um, recovering, compulsive overeater. I am an alcoholic and a burning uh, codependent and member of Al-Anon. So if you have a moment, um, I'd like to take just an extra second to make sure that anything that comes out of my mouth is not me, uh, is uh, God out of my heart and not Heidi in her head. And and I appreciate that. And and, uh, John, thank you so much. If um, the reason for me being here today is to hear John, I'm good and I can leave now because that was outstanding. And um, Maria, thank you. And for everybody else who's doing service uh, on this meeting, you know, I got inspired to do this. Yep. I don't know if this is going to work because I have internet, but I want you to show you. Here we go. Take a trip around what keeps me abstinent. We got some angel cards on my desk and we have three and seven and we have this. What does that say? Your wound may not be your fault, but your healing is your responsibility. Got a picture of my mom. Oh, there's that. Oh, a little more spirituality. I got some hearts, water. I like to burn things to be spiritual. And of course we have big book and, uh, oh yep, that Lord, my higher powered is my shepherd. And those are the things that I keep surrounded by. Let me get just this back for a second because I need to be enfolded in this program because I have a really short memory. And uh, I was listening to John and I go, oh my God, that's my story. Oh my God, that's my story. And the good thing about it is this disease, and I'm going to call it, the disease of addiction or overeating, um, it doesn't discriminate. And it doesn't matter if your childhood, I always say, was like um, Mike and Carol Brady were your parents. Um, Mine were not. I don't use the Huxtables anymore. But the truth is, if you had a really great childhood, it doesn't matter. Something happened with me where I need to fill a God-sized hole with something. And it was food. Now, as my uh, friend before me, my esteemed predecessor, um, gave some qualifications. Um, I'm sober uh, almost 29 years in the food pro and the alcohol program. And uh, that's where I got a great foundation in the program. However, I have a really gentle higher power. He treats me sometimes better than I treat myself. I'm still really way too hard on myself, but I work on it because I need to be kinder to you. I work these principles in all of my affairs, sometimes most of my affairs, but I'm a lot nicer to you folks in the program. Sometimes I am with the close family members that I love too. You guys have been easy, loving, 
practice. And because of that, I've been able to love bigger and bolder and deeper in my own and my own life. And that's only for things that I've learned in this program through this 12 steps and new people. This is a spiritual program. So it was, was talked about earlier. I did not fly in here on the wings of victory. Surprise. Um, there was trauma. Um, my mom died when uh, at 29 years old, the very long time and she had cancer and I was five years old and she left my brother who was eight, uh, a year and a half and two younger kids to my father who was a mess. I'm an adult child of crazy, whatever program that is, I'll get the book. And the truth is my dad was in grief and I just have to tell you the chain that I think today in recovery, I get to break for my son and my family moving forward. Many families, this is a family disease. And I watched the food all over me and God made it aware for me when he was supposed to. So um, my dad wasn't well, he was depressed. His dad died young. He married my mom, who knew, and um, she dies. And then three months after that, her dad dies. They say of a broken heart. My father did not know what to do with three kids. And um, he married, uh, you know, the one woman on the block in the old days. She was, she was divorced. She was crazy. Some would call her the village idiot. And my dad marries her because it was easy. And he was sick. And uh, for the next six years, she was abusive physically. And um, he let it happen. And finally she moved on and rarely, rarely have I seen her. Uh, I know she's alive, but um, as we move on. So we thought it was cute with my dad, but the truth is my dad was a, he liked to call himself a fat guy in a skinny body. I'm surrounded in my family by male um, uh, compulsive overeating, anorexia, and bulimic. Uh, my father and both my brothers, my aunt, my cousin, I grew up with it and we thought it was normal. We thought it was funny. We thought we were crazy, but we weren't. We were sick. So um, my father, we thought it was cute. He would never eat sugar. Um, and then he would run every day, every day on the same block that was nowhere near our house. He would run every day, eight miles. And then if it rained inside our small house, he would do laps in the living room, eight miles in the living room every day. He ate one meal every day, the same meal with the same spoon late at night out of the same bowl. And you can see in our house, he didn't take, you know, we kind of lived in squalor because he had to take care of his disease. Everything he did was to take care of his food. If somebody gave him an idea, like, Al, if you drank a lot of water, it would be good and you'd lose weight. So he would continue to drink gallons of water till he threw off his electrolytes and almost killed himself. Again, he didn't care if we really ate or not. He'd throw us bagels on the weekends and uh, we all got jobs in food service so we could survive and eat. Food made me feel good. When I grew up, 
I had to be a people pleaser. I had to, I had to survive. I didn't know what my stepmother was going to do. I had to be a manipulator and a liar. And I ran away a lot because I didn't want to be where my feelings were right now. I eat because I feel. And the truth is when I was eating, I wasn't feeling. So what worked for me is also being a good girl. Oh my God, what a great character defect, right? A character defect could be something that really is pretty cool, but when you add fear, it becomes a defect, right? Being organized is kind of cool. You add fear and you're, it becomes obsessive compulsive behavior to order things because things in your life you can't control. You can't control the pain. I love to think about the future. I kind of covered up the past. Me, I'm a future tripper. Get me out of where I'm at now, which the food helped, so I could go into the future. So I was always thinking about the future and missing the present. It wasn't until I was able to be still, saw what you folks do, work step 11 to the best of my ability, have my routines, was I able even to be even present. That's one of the gifts of the program and it's taken a long time. So um, being a good girl, I didn't do anything in high school. I, was, I did not pick up a drink early. Actually, I picked up my first drink at eight years old. My uncle had a drink and I saw it and I looked, saw that he was feeling good. So I took a sip and I snuck it, just like I snuck the food. I snuck it and I felt warm and I felt good. And I didn't feel scared and I didn't feel like um, my life was ripped away from me as a kid. And I didn't know what this crazy woman was going to do at home. So I felt good. So I went back and I took another sip. I thought, I feel better. And I hid the drink and I went back and I went back and it made me feel better. And then I puked everywhere. And I'm an eight-year-old sitting here and everybody, you know, no one knew what happened. Didn't touch a drink till after high school. The truth was, I'm a recovering pothead. My bottom was exactly the way that God made it. Recently, I talked to one of my friends and she said to me, Heidi, you were kind of scary. I go, why? You guys are still using drugs. I'm okay. I put the food down and I go to al I'm a triple hitter. And she goes, no, because when you were out there, you never said no to anything. And I didn't remember that, but it's true. You gave me something, I did it. I just didn't want to be where I was. And there was pain that I couldn't find the right measure of anything better living through chemistry that worked. My bottom was pretty benign. I knew I was done. And here's a beautiful thing. Um, I have a lot of yets. I don't want another bottom. John and I share like the same um, addiction bottom where in the first year, the first 90 days, I loved it. I loved going to meetings um, many, many years ago. And then I stopped doing what I was told at about the 120 day mark. And then my, I felt, I found myself alone, feeling lonely in an Almond Brothers concert, shoving my face with popcorn and begging the kids in front of me to pass a joint because that's so attractive. And then I was out to the races and then I came back. That's okay because my first day, and that program would have been April Fool's Day. And now it's December 30th, which means I was done. Like I was done with the food and I could not even rationalize and justify making it 
through New Year's Eve. Who can't rationalize anything? When I'm rationalizing and justifying, I'm in my disease. And I still can be there now. Um, somewhere in the program, around 20-year mark, I was dragged. I crawled. Um, my bottom was pretty easy. And I don't want another one with drugs and alcohol. The one in Al-Anon was, was pretty brutal. Guess what? I didn't know how to deal with relationships. And they were painful. And when I was in intimate relationships or close relationships, it took me right back to healing my childhood. Which Or those same character defects weren't really fixed as much. So anytime I would get into an intimate relationship, I would turn into like an eight-year-old. And I, I wasn't, you know, I wasn't, I was better. But that, that was the next thing that God gently put in front of me. He took away the drugs and alcohol. And he's like, the people. We need you to be close with people. This is what we're going to do. So I crawled into Al-Anon. And, you know, John gave a pitch about another program. I'm giving everybody a pitch for Al-Anon. Yep, Al-Anon fever, catch it. If you like to ride, if you like to ride somebody else's roller coaster, boundaries, saying no is an issue, Al-Anon fever, catch it. So, um, and that, that has been very helpful. And all along working steps. But the truth is, until I got in the OA big book, I never knew the magic of the big book, the healing that was in it, like I did from showing up uh, and, and listening to Harlan's podcast, coming to the meetings. And I do regular big book meetings now. I go to about five meetings a week. They're live, um, OA online. And now that we're past COVID and there's new meetings open up, uh, like the AA Big Book ones, I go all the time. And I cannot believe what I know. I cannot believe what helps me put the food down. I always kind of knew that the food was an issue. It was an issue with my dad. I was always hungry. And so when I ate food, I overate. I was in fear that there was never going to be enough. My whole disease is about, I'm not enough. You can't love me. Why would you love me? And um, I cannot, I'm not enough. Uh, I will never be enough. And I could not ingest enough of anything to fill a God-sized hole. And that was the food. For my small stature, I could, I could overeat most men um, that, were in, that were, you know, much taller and bigger than I. Most, uh, you know, what I did with food was pretty abhorrent, but it worked. It really did until it didn't. And for, and first, I had to talk about it for a few years because I, I knew it was coming. And how did I get here? Wow. Oh, well, I have enough recovery around to know that there were double OA winners where I was, but I kind of poo-pooed them off. I am every bit like them. I'm a compulsive overeater and I don't know when to stop. So um, I hit a bottom two years ago. I've been in the program two years, uh, July 4th. You know, I like that whole Independence Day thing, but um, I was in the hospital in September with a staph infection. I didn't know how I got it. So being in the hospital, I held on. I was abstinent. I was, was thick as a dog. And it was hospital food, but I maintained my abstinence. 
my aunt like made fun of me as I begged for a piece of Ezekiel bread or for them to bring in food, but I made it, I made it. And then when I got out of the hospital, I was still on a pick line for antibiotics for until like January. And when I got home, I guess it was a bigger deal than I really made of it. And I got into the food. It started with comfort food around the Jewish holidays. And then I was off to the races. My bottom, it wasn't horrible, but I got to eat um, a few things I wanted to for about two weeks. I was not on plan at all. So I reset for October 21st. And, you know, I have, uh, I worked the steps uh, with a sponsor, with a sponsor, and we met here. And she is so gentle and so, so much wisdom. And I still have an AA Al-Anon sponsor. And these relationships are where I get to work out um, some relationship stuff where I um, am able to take direction from you people. I trust you people. You come here and you're real and we're not perfect. And as our friend Harlan says, we never can rise above being human. That's such relief. And also at some point, I'm like, what a disappointment. I want to be superhuman. But it really leveled me down to the fact that I'm an addict and I got to get out of the food. And I was able to, and I was able to do it again. My, the wonderful speaker, John, earlier, my predecessor said wonderful things about that it is a process and you learn along the way. And um, I've had to go back recently and look at yellow light foods. I had to put some things down that I thought I can handle, that other people can handle, that I can't. You ever go to an OA convention or a meeting after the meeting with OA and you watch everybody and they're watching what you eat and then everybody orders the same thing? <laughs> it's kind of funny, but we're safe, you know? But I need to be in the pack and not outside of the pack. And guess what, guys? I'm outside of the pack half the time. I haven't been to this meeting in like three weeks and then I hide. So I've learned I need to do things. Uh, honestly and openly and differently. And the other thing is I have to be gentler with myself and with the women that I sponsor. Uh, I have a couple of women in the program that are OA and they've asked me, can we also do that l and thing? So we kind of do them both together, work in a food plan and it is where I live today. And God has guided me here. Why I want to stay here, you know, also, my esteemed colleague, John, I wore the LA hat for John and um, this for uh, Harlan. I almost wore my socks jersey, but I just couldn't do it because they're really bad this year. They were really bad last year. So um, uh, where was it? Well, I, I need to know that I don't, the booze and the drugs, here's the deal. I don't have another run in me. That's a lie. I do. I do. I could probably do one more. Do I have another recovery like this? No way. I'm getting old. I remember nothing. It's too hard. And I will die. And I will start there. It's the same way with the food. I will die. And my dad actually ended up dying of codependency. That's crazy. It's not. These disease kills 
I don't want to die. Why? Because through this program, I've gained too much. I have a son. I've been in relationships, out of relationships. I got married. I've been in the closet. Thank God out of the closet for about the last 20 years. I've had a wonderful career. I have amazing friends. I can pick up a phone and pray with anybody. I had to call a sponsor this morning after I call her my sponsor. I keep getting on the phone because I have to put it out there so I know I can keep things as clean as possible. This is about rigorous honesty to the best of my ability. And I know I need to tighten some things up. There you go. There you have it. Yellow light foods. Got to tighten them up. I'm abstinent today. This is still a one day at a time program. I got to get out of the food or nothing else is going to work. God can't get in on a busy day full slate. Here's one thing I didn't show you. Here's like my to-do list. Post-its everywhere. I had to stop that. I need to find balance. And you can't graft. Sorry, I'm getting emails about tomorrow's meeting that people now do on a boat. We have a very short summer here near Lake Michigan. So um, you can't graft a new idea on a closed mind. And man, I feel so new working the 12 steps. And, and, and it's all because of OA Big Book. I've been to OA before that. Didn't work for me. We have a lot of meetings here. Harlan talks about the Levy Center, Skokie Hospital. Didn't work for me. It was too easy. It was, I got all sorts of new ideas for recipes to eat. That's what I got. That was just my experience. OA Big Book works. It really does, just like this program does. So as I go back to, it is a big book meeting, so to speak. Um, a few things from my favorite page, my favorite line. Page 88. I'll take two things out of here. Second line, thy will be done. Thy will be done. We hear that all the time, Heidi. We hear it every day. But you know what? This is a spiritual program because I have uh, a mental obsession and a physical allergy and I can't do it. It works. It really does. Because if it didn't, I wouldn't be here. There's a million other things I could be doing today, but this is where I need to be to keep the life that I have. And I think there's so much hope, so much hope in just working a 12-step program, working with others, cleaning house, and taking the show on the road here. Uh, you know, the other things I can do in my life, it, it, it's, it's, it's amazing. Faith without works is dead. I got to do some footwork. Showing up to meetings is footwork. I keep hearing from my sponsor and others. I am not in the results business. I'm in the footwork business. And that's new for me. And I'm in sales. So I show up in a, in a sales meeting and I go, I am not in the results business. We are not in the results business. I am in the results business. But even something like that, I can put in my third step God box, which I have which is only dependent on the relationship I have with a loving and caring higher power that I have that helps me make sane decisions, more sane decisions in step two. So I had to be here because I had to hear what John had to say. Thank you. Thank you. Uh, I got to... 
Be still for a moment. I'm eternally grateful. It is gratitude and acceptance at any part of the day that is the salve for all my ills. I'm human. I still can burst out and be impetuous. I took a new job at 57 years old and I'm excited about it, but it's hard. I have to continue to travel, but I know God wants me there. Why? I have more stuff to learn. Kind of done learning, but I'm not. As John said, we go through it and we move through, but I have a higher power, you folks, and a heck of a lot of steps. I have tools today. A few years ago, my sponsor told me that I needed to find a bigger God. And I did. And it was searching. We seek and we searched in this program. And once I did that, um, I was introduced to OA. And that happened quite easily. Working it has been a challenge, but actually being getting here was pretty easy. And staying here, staying here is easy. Trying to get back in here is not easy. So with that, I am uh, joyful for today, prayerful and grateful. Wishing you all the very best and thank you for this, this opportunity and uh, I will keep coming.